0: Hello out
1: there. Yes, hello everyone, and welcome back to the "Number But the Brave" podcast. I am Hal Schwartz, and as always, I'm here with my great buddy Flynn McLean. Flynn, what's been going on? Uh,
0: we finally got BTX back up and running. That was
1: uh, that was quite the adventure,
0: but we uh, finally got it back up. We upgraded the software, and now we're ready to rock and roll. Thank you. Thank you.
1: When we last left off, we were talking about the 1992 album Human Touch, which of course was released the same day, March 31st, as the album we're going to talk about tonight, Lucky Town. Now, connecting back to that episode, it's interesting because we did talk about should the album have been released and... And would it have been better just to go with Lucky Town? Uh, As I was listening to this record last night, it really did strike me that the world would have been a different place, at least Bruce Springsteen's world, had he released just Lucky Town and there had been a Lucky Town tour.
0: Hmm. That's interesting. It would have been, there would not have been as as much of a critical hit to Bruce overall, Without human touch in the world, that is yes. for sure. Because yes. people when people talk about those two albums or these two albums, human touch always it kind of gets it gets it gets slogged. All the, you know. Let's be honest here. Lucky Town, I think it's only guilty by association here. I think it's a tremendous album, and I think had it been released on its own, at, as you're saying, it would have been he would not have lost a step artistically. And I think that his His stature in in that way in songwriting and in recording and recorded output would have been would have been at the same high level that people have been used to.
1: Yeah, I agree with that. And one of the things I also was thinking was, would the band have been the same? Clearly, it wouldn't have been had he toured just behind Lucky Town. Because musically, it's much different. I could have seen maybe if he could have enticed Gary Malabar to join him on drums. He'd already worked with Roy throughout the Human Touch process. Even if it hadn't been released, maybe Roy would have been in the band. They could have done something a little grittier and tighter than what he eventually wound up doing. Now, you and I are big fans of the 92-93 tour, and we're going to talk about that tour at a later date. But as you were just saying... In terms of artistic reception, I, I don't think there's any doubt that both the album and tour would have been better received by the fan base and also likely by the critics had he gone that route.
0: Well, I want to go back to what you said about a different band. They did approach Gary, Gary Malabar about touring and he he turned him down.
1: Oh, I did not know that. Is that true?
0: I thought so. Or am I thinking of Jeff per- Percaro?
1: You may be thinking of Percaro. Okay.
0: But I, th- I thought Malabar also was approached and And he declined to go. And so in that way, it would have been would have been pretty much the same. The only the only thing I can really think of as would have been would have been different was you might not have had as many backing singers. Yes, you might not have had Bobby King and the other the other five five women, maybe no crystal.
1: Well, I don't think you would have had Bobby King at all because he was mainly featured on the Human Touch material, I Wish I Were Blind, Man's Job, whatever the songs were from Roll the Dice, of course. Yes. So there was really no place for him on Lucky Town. You would have had some female backing singers because, of Mm -hmm. course, they're on Better Days and Leap of Faith and and those songs. But it's an interesting question. And, of course, we're talking about an alternate reality here. (laughs) It's... these events took place. We're, we're not going to change that fact, but it is fun to talk about uh,
0: alternatives. One of the, one of the things that fans would have said was he waited four years, four and a half years, to release a new album, and it's only forty minutes long. So I can kind of see that might have gone against him in some way. But I think the uh, the less is more would have would have worked here.
1: Yeah, it would have been a short record on its own, but I don't know that the fans would have cared about that. As we talked about last time, one of the reasons both records were released at the same time was to give him enough material to tour, and perhaps Lucky Town on its own wouldn't have done that. He certainly would have had to fill the show in with a lot more E Street material. But I I think in many ways, the narrative would have been more compelling with just Lucky Town, and he could have very carefully tailored E Street material with it. It really struck me listening to the album last night. And we'll, we're going to get into the songs now. This album, is, is it just me? It, it seems to have a direct tie in Back to Darkness.
0: That's interesting. I And it definitely has a very similar feel yeah. to Darkness. Um, listening As I was listening to the album, it seems like several songs are about, I went through these troubled times, and now I've come out on the other side, and I'm ready to live my life. Happy now. Yeah. And
1: And, and that's exactly, and that's exactly my point. Also, I noticed that Brian, Brian Hyde in his book pointed that out, that if I should fall behind was paired often with darkness on the tour. And there seemed to be some illusions that it was maybe the same character. I never really had recognized it as much until I listened to it last night. Now, when I listen for our show, I, I tend to listen, I think, with a more critical ear than if I'm just bopping around.
0: <laughs> I want to see you bop around. That's yes. what I want to
1: say. Well, well, we'll shoot video of that and maybe we'll put it on the web.
0: That <laughs> uh, sounds good. But it's it's definitely the tightness of it and the cohesiveness of the album is definitely akin to darkness. And I can I can definitely see where, where the, the same guys who were on the darkness album are now are now on the lucky town album. It's you've gone through some, gone through some stuff and you've come out on the other side and, and you're happy and you're, and you're thankful for the journey you've, you've just undertaken.
1: Exactly. And I, and I don't want to ruin our entire argument here tonight, but (laughs) when I think of what is my favorite line on the lucky town album, when it comes to luck, you make your own. To me, that actually goes right back to darkness as well, because the guy on that hill at the end of the song is that the lesson he learned years later, that fighting it out on that hill, you have to make your own luck? I, I don't know. Am I overanalyzing?
0: No, not at all. That's something I really hadn't thought of, at least with directly with just two lines of, of a song. Certainly the rest of the album, but those two lines, yeah, they do harken back to the last verse of, uh, of Darkness on the Edge of Town, the song.
1: Okay, so we're going to have a fun time talking about this. There's a lot of interesting topics here. Before we get into the specific songs, let's just talk about where Bruce was. Of course, he Mm -hmm. had completed the Human Touch record. It was the summer of 1991. Now, uh, Hyatt has an anecdote where Roy does not know that Bruce is recording Lucky Town, and when he finds out about it, he panics <laughs> because he thinks that Bruce is going to scrap human touch, which goes back to the the initial part of, of what we were talking about tonight. I also thought it was interesting that Hyatt cites Carlin having said that Steve told him his advice to Bruce was to scrap Human Touch when he heard it and re-record it with East Street Band that he didn't like the production at all. Now now again that goes back a little bit to what we were talking about last time. It and we were talking about did Bruce have too many yes men around him? <laughs> if if that's if Steve's comments are true, then he didn't have a yes man in in Steve there and and obviously that was ignored that advice.
0: <laughs> well, yeah, but Steve wasn't with bruce every day like uh like toby scott and chuck Plotkin, so he could call up steve and say hey steve what do you think and he say he would say bruce you know no (laughs) you know no don't do that and he could be and bruce could be like all right well i talked to one guy he said no but i'm going to do this anyway right i mean it's, it's it's one thing to have a a contrarian voice outside of your circle it's another one to have it right in there
1: yeah, I, I see your point. And maybe in Bruce's mind, when you think back to the struggle that was Human Touch, uh, maybe he just couldn't bear to toss it at that point. <laughs> they had recorded 40 songs. They He had the writer's block. They had all these arrangements. And it, it, when you think about Lucky Town, it's so much the opposite because the songs just pour it out of him, as he is described in his autobiography and as Hyatt describes in the book. Bruce had married Patty. They had Evan, their first child, and Human Touch was pretty much done in the summer of 91, and and all of a sudden he comes up with living proof, and this album pours out of him in, in two or three weeks.
0: <laughs> and sometimes that's, that's the best stuff right there.
1: Well, it's, there's no question. I mean, when, uh, we when it, know how Bruce wrote for Letter to You, and uh, certainly... There have been other times where he's been prolific, and and at least as these two records from '92 are concerned, you you certainly see it in the results. This is a much more cohesive, artistic, satisfying record, I think, than Human Touch.
0: Oh, absolutely! It's one hundred percent, one hundred percent. It just it just it feels natural.
1: Yeah, it, I, I, the word I, think I like that, is organic. It this okay. is a very organic record,
0: right? And whereas Human Touch was really you know, they forced it. They, yeah, forced is they, the right word. It was literally manufactured. And sometimes the act, that can work, but oftentimes it, it doesn't. And and as you said, the natural organic feel of this record is what makes it so great.
1: So the album begins with Better Days, as we know, uh, which was the co-single, the first single yeah. with Human Touch, although the, Better Days was o- ignored somewhat. And and again, as we said last time, "Human Touch" is a stellar song. So in that case, it, it was understandable. But this was the more interesting development, I think, as far as as Bruce was concerned. We had talked about how "Human Touch" was a natural progression from "Tunnel." This felt a little new. It, it's it's got a grittier sound. He's in a happy place, singing about these things that have happened with his life, and and it kicks off a record here that I think is it really he was exploring these changes in his life in a very specific way.
0: Well, he was certainly, yes, exploring in a, in a songwriting sense. I mean, he had told other interviewers that a lot, a lot of the times he was songwriting was about, was about the past and, what, and how he remembered it or how he manufactured it. And in, in Better Days, it's certainly an example where this is all in the present. It's now. I always like to think of one song on an album as being Bruce's thesis statement for the time and to me better days is that song
1: I, I think you're right there and much like we talked about when we talked about western stars and, and more recently letter to you where those saw the songs on those records really sort of wear his heart on his sleeve i think you're getting the same thing here especially in better days
0: The song really works as as an opener obviously the sound of it but also the fact that he's kind of He's laying out everything that's been going on, and he's made it through. He's, he's tired of waiting for tomorrow to come. It's a sad and funny ending when you find yourself pretending to be a rich man in a poor man's shirt. These well, are all of things that—that that
1: that is the key line there, right.
0: right? And these are all things that he he struggled with, and now he's comes now he's come come to terms with it, and he's ready to to embrace it, embrace life, and em- embraces his, his present his present day life.
1: Oh, for sure. And it makes that verse one of the more important verses of his catalog, because I think it's that moment where he accepts being a rich man in a poor man's shirt. Sure, because as you say, that's obviously something that he struggled with, the having suddenly, after Born in the USA, this immense amount of money and, and being able to live this lifestyle. I, he seems totally comfortable with it today. <laughs> but 30 years ago, he was still, I think, coming to terms with it. And and you're seeing that here.
0: Well I think a lot of it came from talking about singing songs about factory workers and, and construction workers and then based based on those kinds of lives he's he's made that fortune and you know, a little 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 uneasiness there and I, I can I can understand that, but he's definitely worked through I mean to to accept that and he's sure he's definitely enjoying it now.
1: Well, and, and of course, he made his peace with it, as he said in the Broadway show, where, you know, he talked about writing all these songs about working in factories and <laughs> on cars and stuff like that. And, he, you know, he's never done any of that stuff.
0: <laughs> that's how good he is. <laughs> yes.
1: And, and it really is how good he is. I mean, yes. you know, the, 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 that's why there's truth in comedy. That line is both comedic and true. Yeah,
0: that,
1: that really summed it up. I was I was like that. It was one of my favorite lines of the Broadway show. Now, another interesting aspect of this song is that, of course, Southside was about to release a record called Better Days <laughs> at the exact same time he was coming up with this. Obviously, they both released their songs. Uh, they're both very good songs. I don't know if Bruce would have had any pause. It didn't seem to stop him with The House of a Thousand Guitars later on. Of course, he outright stole Born in the USA, a title off a screenplay <laughs> sitting on his table, which he actually describes in the latest Episode of the Obama podcast.
0: There's that line, in and it's been a long time. The song, the on, on which appeared on Southside's Better Days album. Yeah, and he and sings The
1: dreams of better days line. Yeah, it, ain't yeah. it funny how some
0: things don't change? I, I always thought that second part was more of the key line, and I wonder if how much Stephen knew because Stephen wrote the song. And yeah. I wonder. I assume he knew. He had a little bit of a uh, little bit of a heads up. That Bruce Bruce had a, had a song with uh, with that title, and so it was probably was not exactly a, a coincidence there.
1: Yeah, to the extent that that was coordinated, it's it's very cool. And and both records, that's a fantastic Southside record, and and there's so much great stuff on there. And, and in fact, that record never got the recognition it deserved, it didn't. nor did this one really. I mean, let's be fair. <laughs>
0: well, yeah, and I, it, I think it, if if anybody. Who's a Bruce fan? And they haven't checked out Southside's be- Better Days album. Do yourself a favor. Go listen to it. It's a tremendous album. It's one of those. Bruce is all over it. Maybe not literally. He's, all, he's on two songs. He, he wrote one of them. He, it may not be his his you know his mark everywhere, but he certainly is echoes. Of, oh, that of, is of the quintess
1: that is the quintessential Jersey Shore record after the 80s for sure
0: <laughs> yeah i'm gonna go on a limb and say it's even better than the than the three albums that steven and south worked on in the 70s so it's I'd it's be-
1: really a stellar record and uh, again if, i i think most of our audience has probably heard that but i hope if so. they haven't they should check it out
0: absolutely or or, or give, it an, give it a give it another spin it's i'm sure it's been a while since i know it's been a while since i played it so maybe i, sh- I need to pull it out too
1: Uh, Maybe we'll talk about that one one day. Uh, (laughs) But let's move on to the title track of this record. Uh, This is one of his best songs and obviously a personal favorite of mine. And I don't know. It it, it seems to have gotten a little lost over the years, which is a terrible shame. When when the band plays it, they absolutely kill on this. You listen to the version played in Brisbane. On uh, February 14, 2017. It is incendiary.
0: Oh, well, I thought the performance of it, uh, I mean, we're actually about to hit, hit the anniversary of it in Raleigh in 2000. And then uh, Vegas was good. And I think the Giant Stadium performance in 03 was phenomenal. The way Bruce really took the guitar solos in each of those performances and just, just let it, just went to town on it. Oh, and yeah. It, now, one thing I haven't mentioned about this album is that, to me, this one sounds more E Street than than even Human Touch.
1: Oh, yeah, that goes without saying. I no. think the spirit of E Street is more on this record, although I think the way it was recorded and the production on it moved it a little away from E Street. And and in, I know that Hyatt says at points he thinks the production is, is perhaps a little... Uh, too simple as opposed to human (laughs) touch where it was too over the top and it it uh, it would be very interesting having heard a lot of the e street live versions of these songs to have heard what they would have done in the studio but the the album that exists is is pretty damn good
0: right so to me one of the reasons this works the song lucky town works so well with the e street band is that it sounds like the e street band from from its conception and so it's pretty easy to kind of to extrapolate that right onto an East Street Band stage and have it sound 10
1: times more powerful simply because it's East Street. It's a pretty simple song if you think about it, uh, but it's so effective. And, and I, I think other than when it comes to luck, you make your own, which to me is that is a statement. I mean, <laughs> mm-hmm that is a life thesis right there and and I think it's a very powerful one. Uh, I personally love the sentiment and again it calls back to darkness for me. But here in the course you also have the character saying I'm going to lose these blues I found. That seems significant to me.
0: Well, it's the kind of the continuation of the story the of the before story where where he was t- talking about being a, a rich man in a poor man's shirt and here it's um, had some victory that was just failure and deceit to me that's the key that's the key verse in this song long time walking on fortune's cane tonight i'm stepping lightly and feeling no pain yeah, that's no always pain. a that's that's he has l- taken the weight that has been on his shoulders and he's taken it off he, it's been lifted off of him and now he is feeling ready to go take on the world
1: one of the other things i was considering when i was listening to the record last night is this song really, and obviously we know Bruce very carefully constructs a narrative, obviously it kicks off with Better Days, which is saying where he is at the moment. And if you're right about it, going then back and looking at the trouble he was in before he got to Better Days, from there it sort of follows along uh, because the track listing next up is going to be Local Hero, which is about really uh, leaving New Jersey. And and the as you described it, the the Santa Claus at the North Pole effect <laughs> and, and, and then you get to, it, it seems to almost take through, take you through his relationship with Patty. You've got, if I should fall behind, you've got leap of faith book of dreams, which is literally the telling of their, of their wedding. Uh, well, living proof comes before book of dreams. Wasn't Evan born before he got married to Patty? Yes. Uh, yeah.
0: Evan was born in July of 90 and they got married in June of 91.
1: Right. So it, it seems to me like he's basically telling the story of that period in order on this record.
0: Hmm, that's a good point. That's a good call. Yeah, it's well, it's it's his journey of it's his journey. <laughs> he's 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 literally telling the journey in order, as as you said. I, that's yeah, that nails it right there.
1: Well, thank you. It's uh, <laughs> I, I you know, it's it, it's funny because. I never really thought about that before. Now, again, we're we're doing a podcast. We're trying to be more a- analytical and look at these things in the broader context of his work. A- and maybe I just missed it. But it, it, when it's it, you just sort of go, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah,
0: I see <laughs> that. It is a good point. I hadn't thought about that either. And it really fits, especially the the album Closer is uh, it's
1: the buddy, book we'll ends. get to yeah. it, we'll get to yeah. it,
0: so. But yeah, well, it goes in order.
1: So let's go to Local Hero. And and of course, this is timed pretty much around the move to Los Angeles. And I think much more effectively than The Long Goodbye, which we discussed in the last episode, this tells the story of what Bruce was going through, living uh, as a sort of iconic figure in the area where he grew up. Now, of course, ironically, uh, a few years later, he winds up back there and he seems to have come to total contentness with it. But at this <laughs> moment in time, he, he he I don't think he could deal with it.
0: I'm always amused by the by what, what the the quotes he, he attributes to the sales girl. He's where she says just a local hero. He used to live here for a while. Like, does she not recognize him? And maybe that was maybe he was if he, if she didn't recognize him, that would have been a relief for him.
1: Oh, So maybe I, I, t- I took it as a joke because it, she smiles local hero. She said with a smile. Yeah. A local hero used to live here for a while. Didn't you think it was that he's telling the story and she's sort of slyly saying to him.
0: <laughs> oh, a good point. good point. Yeah. He,
1: he's a, he's a local hero, meaning, and she knows that it's him.
0: <laughs> That's a good point. I hadn't thought about that before. And, and that it. Then, but to me that, means this comes after he's made the big move to move to LA
1: well this we, he was sitting in his garage in LA writing this from what we know
0: right well this this dates to about what late summer 91 yes and they had moved out in 1990 so I kind of envisioned one of the trips he had made back to back to Jersey and say the first first half of 91 that were that where this story uh, transpired
1: yeah exactly and, and I think in this song he sort of predicts the future in a way because he says uh, first they made me king then they made me pope then they brought the rope he seems to recognize that perhaps coming off the break the reception is not going to be exactly what it was once before
0: oh uh, you see i disagree with you on the on, on that interpretation what do you i see? go i go back what i think of is that esquire article that ran in with december 88 Oh, was that the one about Saint Bruce or something like that? That's exactly what oh, it was. Oh,
1: okay, right, right. Where right. They, I forgot you know, about
0: that. You know, I mean, that's what the American media does. <laughs> it builds people up to 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 the point where they're practically a saint. And then they do their best to knock them down. And that's exactly what happened to Bruce. Um, you know, there was you know, the backlash after Live 7585, and then the I guess there was some backlash about him, uh, about him and Patty. So that's how I have always looked at that line.
1: That's fair. I, and I totally get that and of course he had been through that maelstrom after the shots on the balcony with Patty and and certainly you would think that would impact anyone no matter how famous you are.
0: <laughs> Very true. Very true, but not but not everyone is a such a great songwriter as Mr. Springsteen.
1: No, that is that is <laughs> certainly the case and I really like the way this song is constructed. And in 92, when he performed it, it, it was really, I think, a lot of fun and and powerful. And the few times he's done it with e Street Band, especially the Leeds version, which is like off the charts great. Mm-hmm. Again, I mean, we're going to sit here and we're always going to be like, he should play this more, he should <laughs> play that more. And we understand he's not going to play 50 songs a night. But <laughs> some of this material is... Is, is so relevant. It, it would be great if he could find a way t- to work it in a little bit more often. Mm-hmm. I yeah. think part of it is, as we know, he's reluctant. He seems to view some of these songs as not accepted by the fan base. That is definitely the case with some of the songs off Human Touch. I don't know if he's actually right about Lucky Town.
0: No, I, I don't think he is either. It's, it's a great song. It's the third song on this album. He played it almost... Well, I guess he did play it every night in '92. It made a v- strong impact. It's about the it's about his hometown. It's about there is some in, tongue and cheekiness here. Yeah, you know, there's maybe it's too personal. Maybe. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if it's if it's as happy a song as as the rest of the as the rest of the ones on this album. But so you can't you can't use that. Uh, people people don't like the happy songs uh, line that he's used a few times.
1: Well, there's a lot of stuff on this record that it's at least has moral ambiguity. Of course, we'll get to the big muddy in a moment. I wouldn't call that a happy song, I'm far from it.
0: Yeah, and he hasn't done it since nineteen ninety three. Yeah, two? that is true. So yeah.
1: <laughs> well, let's get to a song that he has done very, very often, and that is the four track on the record, if I should fall behind, a quintessential Springsteen song and a perfect example of how he often repurposes songs. Of course, this is a song that is really written to or for Patty. Which one would you say?
0: or uh, both? About the relationship with Patty.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah, he, okay. he called it like his compromise song. I, see, I don't see it as a compromise song. I see it as being patient and working with the one that that you're with, working with your partner.
1: Yeah. And from everything that he's talked about, he even just addressed it recently in one of the Obama episodes. He had this doubt, very, very large self doubt about being with Patty and, and engaging in a lifelong relationship, which I, I think the whole concept was new to him. And then having children, he spoke about that very eloquently in the podcast And this song, I think, is reflecting a lot of that. And as we know, in later years, he broadened it where it really takes on friendship and solidarity and those kinds of qualities in a different way, I think, than the original romantic purpose of the song. What do you think?
0: Oh, I totally agree. I mean, he did that from opening night of the the reunion tour with doing it with the band, giving giving each band member or most of the band uh, a few lines to sing. And I thought it was incredibly effective.
1: Oh yeah. That first night in Asbury, when they, <laughs> when we, when they lined up and we realized what was happening, that, that was a magical moment. And that really, it does speak to how he reinvent songs and, and reinvent themes because I, it made total sense when we saw it, but I, Would anyone have expected that that was going to be how, if I should fall behind would be used on the reunion tour? (laughs) Not Uh, at all. No.
0: (laughs) No. And then I thought it was, I know we disagree on this, but I really enjoyed the, the Seeger sessions version of it where they, they made it a waltz. And I thought a waltz and a duet with, with, between him and Patty. And I thought that was extremely beautiful as well.
1: Uh, I'll skip commentary on that, (laughs) but I, I will say there have been some beautiful versions With him and Patty, they did a really nice version. Well, really, Nils fronted that at the Christmas shows. This is much like Born in the USA, which has had how many arrangements (laughs) at this point? This is a song that has had at least five or six effective arrangements, you would say, right?
0: I would say so. I, I'm surprised you haven't mentioned the L.A. shows from the Devils and Dust tour
1: yet. Oh, yeah. I'm talking that, about this That's song. true. <laughs> well, and that was interesting because he actually did like two arrangements in two nights. One was at the piano, and then one was at the guitar the next night. And the piano arrangement of the song also. Look, it's a beautiful song, and, and it expresses a beautiful sentiment. As we know, a lot of people have used it as as a wedding song. Oh, okay. And, and it just this is this is definitely a song that it registers. And it, it, you, when you think about the fact that this song is, it, it was not on Greatest Hits, <laughs> and it just goes to show the depth of his catalog, really.
0: <laughs> well, and then didn't it become, I know Faith Hill covered it. Did she cover it with her husband, uh, Tim McGraw? I'd have to look that up,
1: but I, I, I it has been covered a number of times. Yes, yeah,
0: so I'm kind of surprised that, It it hasn't been a major country hit, but maybe it has. And I just, you know, I don't follow those charts. But I'm just, just, this is a country song through and through.
1: Oh, yes. And
0: that's most of his stuff usually ends up being.
1: Yeah. Well, there's certainly always, I think, an aspect of that at the heart of his material. Uh, Certainly some of the stuff is quite obvious, whether it's uh, Jode and Devils and Dust. And there's obviously... Some elements of that, I think, on Western stars, but here it's tucked in. This this album, the production, because it was not E Street Band, this definitely does have, like the title track, Lucky Town, to me, has a very sort of alt-country feel mm-hmm. to it.
0: Right. Well, you were just reading the Brian Hyde book, and as, as was I, and there were a couple of, I think, Lucky Town, the song he compared to Chris Wheatley's uh, album that, that had just come out. And Bruce was uh, a big fan of that one, so he was definitely influenced by by some uh, alt country acts going on at the time.
1: The next track is "Leap of Faith," and like I said in the last episode, I enjoy a little goofiness in his lyrics, and there's certainly some of that here.
0: Yeah, he was he was going for fun on this one, uh, yeah. talking about the what is thinly veiled sexual activities between your legs were heaven, your breasts were the altar, and your body was the holy land. Uh, that's that's pretty much for Patty right there.
1: Yeah. <laughs> And this is a very simple song. I've always liked the song quite a bit, and it was great fun on the 92-93 tour. It, it's only been played again a handful of times in the E Street era. It, it was played at the Valentine's Day show in 2017 in Brisbane. Uh, it, it, was, it was very fun there. I, this song, we're listening to the record now... It, this one doesn't register as much to me as some of the other tracks do. Uh, of course, Lucky Town and, and Better Days. And I, and I think I, I have grown appreciation for even something like Souls of the Party, which was probably my least favorite song off this record originally. This, this track maybe has has gone down a notch for me, but it's, it, it's good and it's fun. I, it just it, this one seems a little bit more generic than some of the tracks on here.
0: OK, I was thinking maybe the the goofiness factor kind of has taken it has taken its toll over the in the 30s or the nearly 30 years since its release. Um, you know, his, his sexual diary doesn't quite doesn't quite work uh, in a in a stadium rocker at this point. That's for sure.
1: Roy. And, and this is in Brian's book. He seemed to think that this track was was underproduced. And he says to Hyatt that uh, he loved Lucky Town, but that. He thinks it would have been great if the e Street band had recorded this track and 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 very well, this is this is uh, of course, Roy is biased there. But
0: <laughs> well, I, you know I, w- I was laughing because I think it's, every song on this album should have been recorded <laughs> with the e Street band at some point. So uh, I don't know why he would he would single out or yeah. just just one song.
1: <laughs> well, the interesting thing is, though, as organic as i we were talking about it, Would this record have worked in the same way? I mean, here's a guy, he just got married. He's just had a kid. He's sitting in his own garage recording this alone. I don't know that if he would have gotten to the same place recording with the band, especially as they were recording at that time, because they had gotten away from the live recording. I think if he had gone into the studio and recorded this in the manner he recorded Born in the USA or he recorded Letter to You more recently... I think that probably would have worked really well. But if they had gone in and and done it in the manner that they recorded for in a long time after Born in the USA, I don't know if that would have worked because well, it's so organic. I think it just had a pour out of them.
0: Yeah. Well, really the only album at that time. We're talking we're talking ninety-one here. There was only been one album since USA at that point. And that was Tunnel of Love, where they were, in fact, playing Beat the Demo. So at that point, I mean, he had more history of recording live with the band than, than these demos with replacing, with replacing, you know, a drum machine with an
1: actual drummer. Right. But let me make another point. They had been through a year and a half of Human Touch at this point. And obviously, the process they used during Human Touch was how he was recording at that time in a studio and it, it didn't seem to really work that well. Why would you think that had they gone into the studio with lucky town, even with the band there, that it would have been any different than that?
0: Well, I mean, that is a, that's a good point. I, but I thought most of human touch was they had a, they had the guitarist guitar drums and bass pretty much doing the, the core tracks of it. And then adding stuff on later.
1: No, No, I agree. But that's still a record where they recorded song after song after song uh, using studio time. This is a record he went in. uh, uh, Depending on who you believe, it took either two or three weeks, the entire record. Right. I don't think that they would have captured that with the band at the time. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe he would have gone in with the band and said, OK, I'm going to hear the songs as he did with Letter to You. I'm going to count off and we're going to record these songs. And it would have been lightning in a bottle. I don't know if that's where his head would have been at that point.
0: Well, I think if he had recorded this with the band, what he would have done was taken the tape, taken this album as, as recorded those two or three weeks and then taking it to the band in a, in a New York City studio and said, okay, guys, let's, these are the songs we're going to play. We're, we're going to do them live here in the studio. Now, maybe that just wasn't what he was capable of doing at the time.
1: Obviously. I just don't think that's where he was.
0: Okay, well, I mean, that's fair. That's fair. It's, I mean, it could have been another thing of, of, the, of like Nebraska, where he took it in and said, these are the demos. Let's get the full band versions of these, and then realizing the demos were just better.
1: And something else I'll say, even if there are a couple of tracks here where maybe the production is a little undercooked, it captures the moment in time in his life. And I think it does it really well. And I'm not sure I would change anything. If I could, maybe I'd have him pull together all the live versions of these songs and release them as like a digital EP or something. But the record, uh, it stands up. Uh, I think it's, you know, we're on the verge of 30 years. (laughs) To me, it still holds up.
0: Well, I'm not going to disagree with you um i just want i I just think these songs need a need the e street treatment and i think it should be bruce should immortalize that in some way by some kind of official release as you were saying whether it's re-recording and uh doing a darkness at the paramount like thing or or as you said putting together a a digital ep of of all the songs
1: yeah, I, or, of course, there's another way, which would be to do a Lucky Town show at some point. Of course, we know <laughs> that's not going to happen.
0: I bet you we have a better chance of that than a, than a Human Touch show.
1: Okay, well, I'll grant you that one. <laughs> Probably
0: even a better chance of a Lucky Town show than a working on the dream show.
1: I was so happy that night in Brisbane. Uh, the, the last time, I think, when was the last time three Lucky Town songs were played in the same show? I know Better Days... Lucky Town and Leap of Faith all hadn't been played together in a show since 1993, the last show at the Garden. I don't know. There may have been another show where three Lucky Town songs were played, but it was it was it's so amazing. And he really not to beat a dead horse, but he really should play some of this material more often.
0: (laughs) Well, which Garden show are you talking about? The 90 the June 93 show? Yes. Well, he he played three Lucky Town songs at the first night, uh, the second night in Hartford in 2003. Okay. Uh, he did Souls of the Departed, Leap of Faith, and Living Proof.
1: Right. And I, I just said it was the first time Better Days, Lucky Town, and Leap of Faith oh. were played in the same show, I, I okay. believe, since 1993. So, okay. Yeah. So you're
0: talking about those three specific songs then?
1: I, I was talking in general and then about those three specific songs. So, it, okay. But it, it's very rare, and, and, and it's very. special when it happens.
0: Yeah, it doesn't happen very often, as you said, and I would love to see it happen more. But but I'm all, I'm, I'm, all the way to Australia. to Australia. <laughs> okay, next time.
1: Yeah, you, well, next time if you if he goes to Australia, you guys should definitely join. But let's let's turn to the big muddy, a song as I said, uh, uh, very much about moral ambiguity and and really uh, uh, effectively done. This is a very nice piece of writing.
0: Let's see. I don't see the. Maybe I don't see Bruce's moral ambiguity in in his life outside of the of his his wedding situation or his marriage situation. So I don't know exactly where where he's pulling this from.
1: Well, that is the question, isn't it? But we don't know (laughs) that it wasn't coming from his life. First of all, uh, one of the key lines in the song is, uh, of course, about a character who keeps a mistress downtown. Now, the world knew he had a mistress. That, that was a worldwide story, his mistress. Now, of course, she eventually becomes his wife, but he, he even says it was something he did for himself. Maybe that's how he viewed getting together with Patty for the first time, even though he was still married.
0: Well, but, but then I look at the, the, the verses about got in trouble and needed a hand from a friend of mine. And, uh, you know, ain't no one leaving this world, buddy, without their shirt tail dirty or their hands a little bloody. Um, I don't see, I don't, this is, to me, this is a situation where Bruce is inhabiting somebody else, another character, but that would be so against everything else on, on these two records where he was basically being himself.
1: See, I, I understand what you're saying. And I do think in, to a certain extent, he is inhabiting a character here, but I do think there is a something coming from within him that he, he did have these internal battles, even if they didn't play out exactly as he describes in the song and and the refrain, you're waist deep in the big muddy, you start on higher ground, but end up crawling. I, I do think that that probably relates back to what he was feeling during the period of time that led up to the creation of this record. But I do think that He had done some stuff that clearly and and I think you brought it up when we talked about it previously in the book. He he apologizes to Julianne and he says, you know, he didn't really do right by her. Am I right? Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, to me, this is, I think, part of the process of him working out, knowing that he's done cheating on your wife is, well, are we going to say it's a sin? I
0: mean, (laughs) (laughs) well, it's definitely a pretty big uh, uh, moral failing.
1: Yeah. So to me, this is just reflecting that internally, even if he is putting it into a character.
0: Okay. Well, I, I can definitely see the like the emotional struggle about you, you start on high ground, but end up somehow crawling. You start off with your best intentions, but the world hits you, <laughs> and, you and it knocks you down. And then, you yeah, you end up on your knees. I can see that. I can even definitely see that. Even the lines
1: you cite uh, about... Uh, Nobody leaves the world without their shirt tail dirty or their hands a little bloody. His hands have been bloodied. He had an affair. The world knew about it. There was, I think, a lot of judgment about it. He hurt Julianne. But yet it was the right thing for him. The affair was the right thing. It gave him a life. I mean, we've heard him talk about it again, whether it's in the Obama podcast or on Broadway. Patty saved his life. So to me, at the end of the song, he comes out with his hands a little bloody, but it leads, especially since it leads into living proof. To, it, to me, it, it, it makes a lot of sense. But again, maybe I'm I'm reading too much into it.
0: OK, well, I just don't look at the the cheating in the affair <laughs> to be on the same line as, uh, you know, your short tail bloody um, or dirty and your hands, bloody. I just, I, you know, I get it where it's... It's metaphorical, I think. it's But it's, I don't know, I, I think you're taking, it's it's being blown up into, I mean, he didn't kill anybody. <laughs> he didn't hurt anybody.
1: No, um, but I don't, I, I, I think the moral ambiguity in the song, the po- which of course, the poison snake bites you and you're poisoned too, that's taken from uh, Pete Dexter. So, and then you look at the next line, how beautiful the river flows and the birds they sing, but you and I were messier things, you know again uh, i don't think that he views his relationship with patty as as messy but the genesis of it certainly was okay i mean uh. I, you know again i only because of the context the fact that it goes into, and uh, uh, we've said this so many times, he sequences these things very carefully. The fact that this song goes into Living Proof, I, I think it gives it a little bit more heightened importance because Living Proof is probably the most important song on the record. Well, there's no probably; it is the most important. <laughs> song on
0: the record. Yeah, that's it. That uh, Living Proof is the song of this record. It was the genesis of this record, and again, it shows his his journey. From the darkness, from from the from the from the from the empty cage that he had to f- basically just had to walk out of, he just needed Patty's hand to to draw him out.
1: This is a perfect song and. Again, just almost comical to say, but again, very rarely played. Should be played more. <laughs> but this really is a perfect song. And it, it, one of the interesting things about this song is that it's so personal to him in a positive way. Maybe Evan doesn't want him to sing it. I don't. Uh, I don't know. Maybe that's part of it. I think he did reference Evan when he played it at the uh, Meadowlands, the one show he played in 2016, right? Uh, yeah.
0: I think so, but I yeah, think uh,
1: it, because it's such it's it's so perfect and it's so meaningful to him, you would think it would get more airings. But
0: well, maybe that's the reason why it's it's too personal. But I remember listening to the Milwaukee performance from 2009, where they started off not Max didn't know the song at all, or at least that's what it seemed like, and then they basically worked it out on stage. And by the time they by the time the song ended it sounded like, sounded like they've been playing it for for twenty years. it's the band can do that with with this with this type of song and but it was a that was such a rare performance of it.
1: it it there's the lines in here in a world so hard and dirty, so fouled and confused, searching for a little bit of God's mercy. I found living proof now you and I have not at least to the moment known the pleasures of fatherhood. I as you know am extremely close with my niece and nephew, so i sort of get it i have been there and held them uh, you know when they were days old or whatever and uh, but just it, it's such a beautiful sentiment and 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 so beautifully expressed and at the the music and the production on the song I, this is really one of his perfect songs
0: not going to disagree with you <laughs> not going to disagree with you the way I, the way I, one of the ways I view it is the way Bruce talked about a uh, fatherhood, becoming a father right after Evan was born at the Christic shows. And he just wanted to stop and tell the whole world that, stop, uh, a miracle has occurred. And to me, that's the, that's like, that's maybe the genesis of this song. That just that, in that amazing emotional feelings that he had, probably overwhelming about being a father and saying, that's, that's my son and I have to protect him and I have to do right by him for the rest, for the rest of my life.
1: Yeah. And uh, you wonder what Bruce thinks about, we, we mentioned this last time, uh, you know, would, would, what would Bruce think if he sat down and listened to human touch today? The, the flip side of that is what does he think if he does sit down and listen to lucky town, because this is, it's talking about s- such important moments of his life. And, and I imagine even though he doesn't play these songs enough, I, I think he's got to be very proud of this record.
0: I would think so. And but we let's go back to the Devils and Dust tour again. This was actually a, a relatively frequent set list uh, appearance. Uh, he did it on the, he did on the Pump organ, and I think he did it on guitar once or twice. Right. So when he when he's in the Nine e Street mode, he he he's able to gravitate more towards these kinds of songs.
1: Yeah, I, I get what you're saying there. It's it's just that, especially something like Living Proof, it, it fits in so well in so many respects. It, it's it's surprising. I I think it's played. What has it been played three, four times in the reunion era? Not including, of course, the Devils and Dust tour.
0: Uh, three or four times. I think I think he did it twice in 2003. Think he did it in hartford and chapel hill um in september and then then he did it in 09 and then he did yeah the 2016, one time it, the
1: one time at the Meadowlands at met life yeah
0: so yeah four times <laughs> yeah kind of surprising when you when you think about it especially considering as uh, such an e street sound to it
1: yeah uh, it's really uh, and it Every performance, it was great with the 92-93 band. I think the version of Living Proof, which was a surprise in the second set at the Hunger Benefit, which has been released uh, June 24th, 1993 show, that is a really fiery version of Living Proof. And of course, on SNL, when he he did that appearance, the Living Proof there was basically note perfect. Mm
0: -hmm. Oh, absolutely. That was... That was amazing. That was an amazing performance. Uh, if we were a little bit worried after Lucky Town or the Goofy Fifty Seven Channels, everything, all our fears were were assaged on uh, on Living Proof, which was up next.
1: Yeah, that that version of Living Proof that night really, I think, caused the buzz and and raised hopes for the tour. I
0: don't know if it raised hopes. I think it just reassured us that he was he was coming back and he was coming back
1: just as strong as ever. Yeah. Okay, that's fair to put it that way, and of course the next track up is "Book of Dreams," as we were talking about, th- describing his wedding day very specifically. I might add. <laughs>
0: yes, very. And, what do you uh, think of
1: "Book of Dreams"? Um, well, it's, I hate to sound uh, kind
0: of like a stereotype, but it doesn't it doesn't move me. It does it doesn't rock me. So, in that way, I kind of skip over it a little bit, but. Uh, but the way he described the, the the intimacy of between him and Patty, and the darkness, my fingers slip across your skin. I feel your sweet reply. That verse is just is just. I mean, that's that's just beauty right there.
1: It's a very personal song on a very personal record. That's
0: yeah, that that kind of basically sums it yeah. up.
1: And there, I don't know how much there is to say beyond that because it is telling a very specific story, and and we know it's his story and the story of that day. So and oh. it, to me it works in that fashion.
0: Well, I think it, the the first verse where he's uh drinking in the forgiveness that life provides and the scars we carry remain but the pain slips away it seems. That's kind of those 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 lines can kind of describe this whole album. It's you've had these problems in the past and there's you can you can start again. You can you can have the forgiveness that, that life provides with a fresh start and you can, and yeah, your pain does slip away. It takes time. You can have, are going to have to, always going to have the scars, but the pain does, does diminish over time. Time, but time takes time.
1: Oh, I, I like that. That, I think that was very eloquent. Oh, thank you. Thank Is you. there anything else to say about book of dreams?
0: I, well, was it done on the doubles and dust
1: tour? I think it was I, once yeah, or twice. I think it was done once, maybe twice. Okay. I'd have to go Uh, look it up. It obviously has not been performed with any band configuration since 1993.
0: uh, I don't think it's been done since 92.
1: Oh, right. It probably wasn't even played at all in 93. You're right there.
0: Right. But it was done at the the MTV Plug Show. So we kind of, that's, to me, that's the definitive live version, even if it wasn't released. That version wasn't released. Yeah. You know, through the magic of bootlegging, we have the whole show.
1: (laughs) Yes, we do and the next song souls of the departed this to me is the natural progression out of living proof and and book of dreams and the songs that came before certainly also this one harkens back i think a little to the big muddy because there there is some ambiguity in this song in the sense that and i think bruce took a little criticism for this at the time he's talking about these children who have been killed and and he, he's praying for their souls. And then at the end of the song, he sings, I want to build me a wall so high nothing can burn it <laughs> down right here on my own piece of dirty ground. And to the extent that there was criticism of that, and I think Brian notes that in his book, it it, it seems so misplaced to me because you can be both sympathetic to children who have been casualties in, in, in this horrible war, especially that was taking place. He, I think he's singing specifically about Los Angeles yeah. at the time. And it, it was, it was, it was, it was rough and still want to protect your own children. And and that's a reflection, like I say, of, of the songs that came right before it. So I, I don't think there's any disconnect at all between singing about Rafael Rodriguez and wanting to hide your own children behind a wall, of course he he, he, he wants to hide his children behind a wall. He he wants to keep them safe, and he, he he feels like all children should be kept safe, but he can only help really his children.
0: That's a good point. I I wouldn't say hide though. I would use the word protect. Yeah. In, a, in each of those each of those sample, examples that, that that you gave, um, yeah. the the first thing I want to say about the song is that the way I kind of hear it as the harshness of the world, <laughs> after the after the beauty of Book of Dreams, because it, it, it just Book of Dreams ends on such a, a beautiful note, uh, a tender note there, quiet musically, and then bam, souls the departed, comes in and just kind of wakes you up to the to the realities of the world, and I don't think that's that's not a coincidence.
1: No, and and of course it, it does open not with a young child, but with a lieutenant in Basra, which is a reference, of course, to the first Iraq War, and it, it's a, it's very powerful imagery. Uh, he's detailed he's detailed to go through the clothes of the soldiers who died. That's a, it, it's it, it's very dark, and I, I think that Bruce was dealing. There was a lot going on in America at this time, of course right after this album would be released would be the Rodney King riots as they were rehearsing for the tour Mm -hmm. in Los Angeles. And uh, there were, there was so much going on and he he was living in Los Angeles. And, and, and as I say, it's a natural inclination. He says tonight, as I took my own son in bed, he, his firstborn son. And he, he actually spoke about this with Obama, about how you want to protect your children early in their lives from the world. And, and, and that's what he's singing about here for sure.
0: And I think this song goes more towards the the state of the world by using the news clips way better than Fifty Seven Channels does.
1: You're talking about uh, live, live, yes, yeah, yes. Yeah.
0: When when they played it on the tour and they used the some of those samples, the the sky is lit up with the the trace of the bullets and and other bullets in the air, or I forget yeah. the exact.
1: Bernie exactly Shaw like of CNN, yeah,
0: right. There, are, well, there's a whole bunch of them, and it worked really well. And I think. It was way more effective than, than, that, than what, whatever he was doing with 57 Channels.
1: On the 92-93 tour, I was never a huge fan of the song. The ones that got me and, and the first Night of Shea is the one that comes to mind. Of course, we'll never hear that. But that's, again, <laughs> let's not bring that up. But the first Night of Shea, the version of Souls of the Parted that opened that show, was, was a, at least as I remember it and through the magic of bootlegging, very fiery.
0: Yes, and I thought the the version on the third as well, because I, I didn't I didn't see this, the show on the first, and but I thought it was tremendously tremendously effective, and obviously history may not repeat itself, but it often rhymes, and so um, he he was performing it just as uh, six months or so into the second Iraqi war, so things didn't exactly change very much in the twenty eleven years since he first released it.
1: Think about how much the song remains relevant today. Uh, now, in many ways, L.A. is a much better place than it was then. But there's still a lot of children here who face huge challenges. And, and that's only gotten worse during the pandemic.
0: Yeah, I was thinking about this song a lot during the basically during the Trump administration, not to go too political. But the part about I trade, apply my trade in land a king dollar and all the hatred and dirty little lies get written off the books. Yeah. To me, that's that's kind of what we've gone through over the last four or five years. And I'm, I'm kind of wouldn't be surprised that this one showed up on the next tour. But then of course we keep saying that over and over and over
1: again. You know, there's, well, the lines also the lines, his mama cried. My beautiful boy is dead in the hills. The self-made men just sighed and shook their heads. I, I think that's also very relatable today. Uh, unfortunately you see, some of these tragedies where, or in the case of Chauvin, uh, not a tragedy, an actual, in my opinion, a murder. We'll, we'll see what the jury decides quite soon. But the, the mothers of the victims on TV basically saying, my beautiful boy is dead. And it's it, it just, it's incredible how relevant these songs remain 30 years later. And it's kind of
0: kind of sad and unfortunate as well.
1: And to that extent, I know you haven't listened to the Obama podcast very much, but the last episode was titled Looking Towards American Renewal. Hmm. Exactly the themes that they're talking about is reflected in what we're talking about, that Bruce has been looking at these topics for his entire career yeah. and, and moving forward you know, hopefully there is going to be some renewal and there's going to be some change. It, it hasn't happened yet, and it, that, it, as you say, it's said.
0: We all, all always hope, and I think just for that discussion and the and you were telling me there's a a new arrangement or new performance of Born in the USA included at the end of that episode. So definitely one I
1: need to I need to listen to sooner rather than later. You should definitely check it out. It, it as I said a couple of weeks ago. Very worthwhile, and uh, I think the level of their discussion, the one thing I'll say, and we're getting a little off topic here, but in this last episode, (laughs) which does feature that version of Born in the USA, they talk a lot about Born in the USA and the song and the Genesis, and Bruce goes through how he got the script from Schrader and all that. The one thing I wish Obama would have asked him, President Obama, I should say, uh, the uh, and I think he does not follow Springsteen's set list, I'm guessing, like we do. Yeah,
0: I don't think he's a Bruce. But Ed, they, no. were
1: t- they were talking about Born in the USA in such detail, and he was asking about performing overseas. The one thing he didn't ask, and he probably doesn't recognize this, is that Bruce pretty much only performs Born in the USA with the band in Europe. And I'd that's love, I'd love if to ask about that. what is the thinking behind that? And we know part of it is that he doesn't want to misappropriate it here in in the United States. and he he did talk about that very powerfully in the episode. but it, it it would be an interesting question, but we're we're getting off the lucky town topic with only one song to go, and that's my beautiful reward.
0: Yeah, let's get back to that one. And that such a beautiful way to end the album. Such a beautiful song and he to me this even even if you achieve some kind of happiness after going through uh, years and years of of depression and sadness and and isolation you're still always a work in progress and that's that's how i hear this song that you're you've made it but you're still searching for for the for your beautiful reward
1: yes and it ties back to the opening track to me better days he says, I was so high. I was the lucky one. Then I came crashing down like a drunk on a barroom floor. He's recognizing that with all these positive changes in his life, it, 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 he's not <laughs> there yet. No, he's not. He's and not. he's he- still searching for that beautiful reward. And and that it is a beautiful sentiment. It was performed beautifully in 92, 93. It worked incredibly well on the pump organ in 2005.
0: Mm-hmm. and
1: it, it serves as the perfect coda for this record
0: yeah um i was reading in the hyatt book as well that he didn't he doesn't end it this song ends on some ambiguity here there's there's no conclusion to to the song and to the theme and that's probably the and it works for that very reason because you never you never really stop searching for, for that reward i hate to keep coming back to just just repeating that the title of the song but it's it's an ongoing process and it's never really fully, fully resolved.
1: And no question, he's still searching for it today, even though oh, we absolutely. know he's found very, uh, very much a lot of happiness. And I, I think he's he's pretty content. Uh, obviously, the man has a, a great life and mm-hmm. it, just just as, just slightly. Yeah. <laughs> but he's still out there searching and
0: see, he's still out there. He's still working. He's still coming up. He's still writing songs. He's still recording them. And you know, we, even if we don't hear them, he's still searching for the perfect sound on, on those
1: albums, on yeah. the lost albums. And, and that brings this beautiful record to a close. Now, there was one outtake from this record, and it's worth noting, That's Happy, which was recorded in January 1992. And I, this is another stellar song the in the book in hyatt's book they he talks about how and i think plotkin says uh, ta- that the song is very complicated and you've never heard a guy <laughs> sing about being happy who sounds so unhappy yeah it's
0: yeah it's not like pharrell williams song that's for sure uh, it, it, she talks about the complications between relationships between men and women and Circ- circ- circling each other in a cage. That, I, that line always kind of cracked me up, or makes me think <laughs> one of the two. And but yeah, there's no. It's still like a search for that happiness. It's not there. You're, you're still kind of searching for it.
1: I agree, but I do think the song takes a turn at the end. The way the synth goes up at the end, I I do think it leaves you on a on a, an uplifting note.
0: I can see that. Where it's you feel like you're you're on your way to finding it and, and it's not, and you're being guided in that direction by, by the music. I can see
1: that. And in that closing moment, he says tonight, let's shed our skin and slip these bars, happy in each other's arms, happy baby come to dark, happy in each other's kiss. I'm happy in love like this. Uh, you know, I think the character arrives at that moment and, and, and that's where he was in his life. whatever, internal battles that were going on and as we know he's had those demons and then they persisted well beyond that I, I think at that moment in time he arrives that he even if he doesn't sound it fully in the way he is singing he is happy and that's reflected i think at the very end of the song hmm, that's a good point i hadn't
0: thought of it about that way so yeah that works
1: and if yeah. people haven't listened to that track in a while, check it out because it's it's really really good.
0: Yeah, it's it's was one of the best songs on tracks. As we were talking about on the last episode, even Bruce himself said that some of the stuff they he he released on tracks was better than the stuff on the on the two ninety two albums. And I think that one uh, is a perfect example, even if it may not have fit on the on the Lucky Town record.
1: And it couldn't have made it anyway because they recorded it too late. So, <laughs> well.
0: Let me see it was January 92. Uh, And it came out
1: March 31st. So that would have been really pressing it. Now it could have been a B side.
0: Could have been. Instead of part man, part monkey.
1: (laughs) That would have well. Let's not go there. (laughs) Yeah. Anyway. That concludes our talk of the 92 records. Love this record. And I'm just glad we got a chance to talk about it. Now, coming up on the next episode, this is a bit exciting. Uh, we, can, we can say it here. We're going to be talking the European 1981 leg of the River Tour with Dan French. Who? How many of those shows did he see?
0: Uh, five or six. But it was his journey around the country and, and, and meeting the band and, and Bruce himself that really makes it a, a fascinating story
1: yeah no we're really looking forward to that
0: it's gonna be a fun discussion dan's actually done a lot of writing on it yeah uh in in commemoration of the 40th anniversary and 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 backstreet's magazine has been tweeting uh daily anniversary reminders from, from that tour and it's it's fascinating to 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 relive it through through those little tidbits and and certainly through the magic of bootlegging, as as we mentioned earlier <laughs> earlier in the episode,
1: and it ties in nicely to our previous Vietnam Vets episode as well.
0: Yes, yes, it does. Yes, it does. And it's I like to hear stories from the, from the people who were there at the time when when this stuff was happening. Yes. Um, I mean, we love talking with Jonathan Pont, but he wasn't at the show um, at the Vietnam Vets show. So to to get the prefer- first hand perspective about what it felt like and will be will be fun.
1: It certainly will. So tune in for that. That'll be the next episode. And with that, I'm just going to say our usual spiel at the end. None But The Brave is a presentation of Bull Market Entertainment. Please subscribe to the podcast on your platform of choice. We're on Apple, Amazon, Google. You know where to find us. And if you (laughs) want to interact with us on the net, please find us on Twitter at NBTB Podcast or on our website, nonebutthebravepodcast.com.
0: So, for House Works, I'm Flo McLean saying thanks for listening, and we'll see you further on up the road.
1: Thank you so much. We'll be seeing you.
0: Bowie.
1: podcast.